Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Star Line by casting director, producer, photographer, and author of Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season. The man who got Joaquin and River Phoenix their first agents and is directly to blame for David Hasselhoff. We welcome Joel Thurm. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me here. Joel, let's go beyond the mic. Your family life was challenging. Demanding father, orthodox light household. How did those early days influence your work? I don't know how it influenced it. Just I just knew I had to get out. I mean, it influenced it. If I hadn't gotten out, I would have never done any of the work that I did. So uh, I was highly motivated to uh, do everything exactly the opposite of my family. <laughs> you say you grew up in an orthodox household. Well, it's not quite true. My um, Well, orthodox light. You enjoyed a good BLT. Well, exactly. So it was the, uh, what's the word? When, when you say one thing and do another, the hypocrisy. <laughs> So it's like, well, you know, this this doesn't make sense to me. If you can't eat it in the house, why can you have it outside of the house? I mean, years later, I found out that my mother kept a kosher house so that should her father ever want to eat in the house, it would be okay for him, which made sense. But that only makes sense when it's explained as an adult. As a kid, it just looks very Hippocratic. How did you go from pre-med at Hunter to one of the most prolific casting directors in Hollywood? I flunked out of college. Very simple. (laughs) In my sophomore year, after the first semester of my sophomore year, I accidentally, I might add, flunked out. Because I thought I was withdrawing from a chemistry class without prejudice. However, as it turned out, the teacher felt differently and was drawing me with a failure. I mean, really, it was very unjust because if I knew that was going to happen, I would have stayed, taken the final, got a D, and, you know, probably probably the same result would have happened. I would have flunked out anyway. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, I did flunk out, and I didn't know what to do. School was, you know, what moored me through life up to that point. I decided not on a whim exactly. I I was very into mythology at that point, Greek uh, mythology and Roman, and I decided to go to Italy. And that was the height of Italian cinema: uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Cleopatra. You know, all that stuff sounded very glamorous. I knew someone who was living in it. Anyway, the point is, I went. I just again, it was the one of my first cases of leaping before really looking. But I went. <laughs> Joel, how did Italy change the way you looked at yourself and the way you looked at the world? Actually, I never thought of it because I guess one never thinks of change while you're being changed. Uh, I guess it, it affirmed that I was not like the rest of my family. That I, you know, I was the first, I think, I'm not think, I'm pretty sure that I was the first generation to go back to Europe after the Holocaust. And it was a pretty daring thing to do. Okay, I'm going to Europe. (laughs) Bye for a while. And I survived that I I had survival. I I mean, my survival skills were partly due to basic smarts. So the first thing that I did was I bought a Vespa. That way I could travel around and get places. What color? Do you still have it? Blue. Blue and gray. No, I don't still have it. I wish I did. It would be probably quite valuable now. A Vespa as opposed to a Lambretta. Those were the two um, popular brands of scooters. But the Vespa was like was like a Volkswagen. It was very unique in design. The Lambretta was a little more streamlined, but it, it just didn't have that wonderful look that the Vespas had. Joel, you've been blessed with luck in your career, mm-hmm. which you detail in your book. What was the one offer that changed your life? Actually, each little step up was important. 
Getting a job, for instance, in my after the first year of college, getting a job as the box office treasurer at the Tappan Zee Playhouse. I mean, it was a real job. It was a it was one of the best of the summer stock theaters. I learned, you know, it was. Uh, but the fact that I got the job and I delivered in the job, uh, I was, I you know, I, I guess that was the first one. But each subsequent job was another step up, and I always delivered once I got the opportunity. So I don't know. They were they were all important. Each one was very important at the time, and each each step up was bigger and bigger and bigger. Author of Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Joel Thurm joins us beyond the mic for the Rocky Nate. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Joel, there's no pressure. <laughs> What's your favorite museum of all time? Uh, museum of Natural History, New York. Show that you wanted to cast but never had the chance. West Side Story. <laughs> The Rat Pack was one of the greatest collection of talent in one place. Yeah. Is there a current group of actors, talent, musicians, etc., that could be considered the new Rat Pack? Well, I don't think they're a group. <laughs> I think there is no group at the moment. Yeah, no, I, I, no, there is, there is no. I don't think there's any group that I know of. I mean, I'm not part of this, so I don't know. But I, in the, you know, I, I see pictures in magazines and I read, and I don't think there is a group. I think everybody's out for themselves. They're not a group. <laughs> Was there a show that David Merrick produced that you couldn't stand? Oh God, um, bum bum bum. No, there is none. There is none. How about one you didn't like as much? Rockefeller and the Red Indians. <laughs> It was a British import that that was in, the reason why I worked in London and in, in England was because it, I forgot the name of it, but it was a very big comedic star in England. And he was brought over with the package, but it just didn't work. I didn't I didn't really understand it and uh, nor did anybody else. So that was it. <laughs> What color was your 65 Mustang and do you wish you still had it? Yes. And uh, when I bought it, it was, uh, I'm trying to think, I think it was kind of beigey, but then I had it, it had a beige interior, but I had the, I had it painted like a baby blue, like a sky blue. I've always, I love the combination of uh, light blue and light brown together. So that was the color. And that, that uh, yes, yeah, that was it. Is there a story you'd like to share? Well, no, the story that's come to mind is it was stolen. It was stolen. Uh, I was I was actually visiting the Phoenix family. They were living in Sun Valley, which is uh, uh, part of the hills ringing the San Fernando Valley. And I had parked it. God, you know, it's it's I I, I can see this in my mind. Uh, I think I, I left it for whatever reason. I didn't drive home, probably because I had too much to drink and I called a cab or something and I left it on their street and it was gone. It was gone and taken for a joyride, but it came back. It was a little scratched up and I had it repainted and it was disgusting. I had it repainted like a silver metallic color, which is just horrible. <laughs> Who are the top three greatest performers you've ever seen live? Live. Well, okay. Well, it has to be uh, Liza Minnelli, um, Mick Jagger. I'm trying to think of another. I mean, there is another one, but uh, I want to say Frank Sinatra. But um, I think he the performance that I saw was at an NBC affiliates meeting. And it was I think it was just a paycheck for him. It was it wasn't like he was putting I didn't feel that he put enough effort forward. But uh, yeah, I, I'm saying that based on his 
prior work. <laughs> Once you saw Sinatra, everything else was different. Well, uh, also, yeah, I mean, that's which reminds me of something. There's a, a character actress you may know of. Her name is Doris Roberts. Uh, she was Raymond's mother, for those who don't know who she is on Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. And, and she was part of Remington Steel. Remington Steel and part of the show that I produced called Angie, but I was just giving her main credit. And she specialized in, well, all she did was play Jewish and Italian mothers. They're very similar. I'm not sure which one has more guilt, but they're basically the same. But anyway, Doris has been in a lot of, um, a lot of theater and several long runs. And uh, a friend of mine asked her, how do you do that? How do you, how do you do a long run? How do you stay in shape? How do you get through it? She said, you fake it. It's acting. <laughs> and I love that line. You fake it. Well, you know, isn't acting faking in a, in a sense, unless you're a diehard, um, I don't know, a method actor. It's faking. <laughs> if you're enjoying these conversations, please check out another Beyond the Mic episode to find more actors, artists, and people you need to know. We'd also appreciate a like and subscribe on the Good Pods app. What was the tabloid story you read that you got the angriest with? Well, I, I'm trying to think. You probably know the answer, but I would think just recently at tabloids um, talking about me. Why? Well, you know, the stuff with Robert Reed, which you know all about, so we don't have to go into it. It just seemed that... They ignored the rest of my book and only talked about that. You know, they took two things out of my book, and I'm very proud of my book. It's 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 um I think it's a it's a wonderful history of casting in the entertainment or at least the television business during a certain era. But um, they they com- completely ignored the book and only talked about those two incidents. Do you think that is what society does now, focusing on the one thing that will get the most clicks and likes? The short answer is yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, how would Hollywood would have been if TMZ existed in the 50s and 60s? Well, I, I'm perhaps, you know, certain closeted movie stars, example, Rock Hudson might have been exposed on TMZ. Instead of uh, the gentleman's agreement uh, between various news uh, media and magazines that that would never be talked about. Have you achieved all your things on your bucket list? No. (laughs) My travel is the uh, I've never been to uh, in the Far East. I've been to Hong Kong and Thailand, but I've never been to China, Japan. I've never been anywhere in South America. The closest I've been was probably Costa Rica. So there's, you know, whole parts of this world that I'm dying to see. I, I mean, I, I'm a big fan. There's this PBS television show called Rick Steves Europe. I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great time filler, but he did a, um, while you're waiting to watch something else, <laughs> there was an episode he did on uh, Bulgaria. And I didn't realize that Transylvania was part of Bulgaria. And it's like, I want to go to Bulgaria. I want to see, you know, um, Count Dracula's, uh, not what's his name, Dracul, you know, the, the mythology. Yeah, but anyway, it just the, the, the place looked fascinating. So, um, you know, but I could get, I could go to, I've never been to Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm sure I'd go there, the most probably boring of Midwestern cities, and find something very interesting about it because it's different. It's not something that I've seen before. The book is Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season. They can't see it. We're on the radio, but <laughs> Joel Thurm holding it up, 
showing us and talking to us behind the mic. Joel, who designed the cover? <laughs> Everyone can't see it. Doesn't matter. Well, I hold it up because I just love the cover. A man by the name of Glenn Hansen did the uh, did the artwork and the caricatures. But someone has to take that artwork and put it all together. And it was a guy named Rex Bonamanelli who did the who takes that and makes it into a book because there's the front, there's the back, and there's a spine. Someone has to do all this work. It doesn't happen by immaculate conception. Joel, so many people work on a piece of entertainment and TV will sometimes collapse the credits, yeah. making them pretty much unreadable. I know you've gotten paid for the work. I know that, that you've already collected the check and cashed it. And yet credits are almost an afterthought. Well, I think it's must be absolutely shitty. But um, I was lucky because my work, uh, the work that I did, it didn't happen then. I, you know, I've <laughs> told this story in the book. The first big thing that I did where my name was bandied about was the Bob Newhart show. The first one, the good one with Suzanne Plachette. Not that the second one was bad, but mine was better. <laughs> my name began to appear every week on Saturday night. It was the most watched night in television at that point. And every transgression that I might have had was forgiven because my name was on television. And it's and the credits ran, ran by as the way they should, you know, just, you know, slowly. You could read things on it. And uh, no, that really, um, uh, it, it changed my life because my parents, uh, my, my, my father never really had a big problem with it, but my mother had a problem with me being gay. More out of not religious feelings or anything, it's just the shame factor. So this took away all the shame because my name was on television. My son is a celebrity, I mean, in her mind, you know. And, and, I, and I suppose compared to the rest of the family, yes, you know, I had done something that none of them had did. I escaped. <laughs> Why was telling this story so important? It was my therapy. <laughs> it's that, that simple. I'm too, I'm too cheap to pay a therapist 200 bucks an hour. So writing this book was much better than any therapist. It, it, it allowed me to look back at my life in a very good way. I mean, I looked at things I, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda, might have done differently, shoulda done differently. But basically, when I look back at it in its entirety, it was pretty good. What story was too dark to put in because of the hurt memories? Oh, I don't, I can't, if it, if it is, I probably blocked it. I don't, I honestly, I don't know. You know, I've talked about my my dark writing when you're not when you don't talk to your father between the ages of fourteen and nineteen. That's pretty bad, you know. But I talk about it, so I don't know. I guess it was what I didn't go into great detail, and I'm not going to go into great detail now. But in and when it comes to dealing with my sexuality, when I first started coming out, I didn't know that I could say no. I thought, oh, this is what you're supposed to do, even though I don't like it. And eventually, I, you know, I, you know, I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. No, no. But but that was my confusion at that time. Joel Thurm joins us beyond the mic. Joel, do you have any regrets about not being able to serve in Vietnam? Not regret. I have a theoretical regret. <laughs> Why? In that, if if uh, I knew I would be useless as a soldier. But if they took my talents and and put me in, you know, I forgot what it was called, the the show business part of it, whether USO, USO, if they, or not only USO, but yeah, I guess it's USO, helping to put on shows, getting people, doing this, doing that, I would have been there in a second because I would have been useful. 
But just to go in and be cannon fodder, no. What was the best moment behind the scenes with Pearl Bailey? It's not a story. No, there are no other stories that really didn't make us and not important. But to me, the the thing that I remember most um, is after having not seen each other for 10 or 15 years and our relative positions in life had changed. I was now the big executive at NBC and she was the person who not everybody wanted to cast in something. In other words, I, I was the strong, I was the more important one in that sense of, of uh, but when she walked into my office, just looking at each other and not being able to do anything except just hug each other for five minutes. That to me is, is the moment that I will always remember. Joel, what's the biggest misconception and biggest truth about Hollywood? Well, one, the casting couch, I think is, you know, obvious is, a, is more of a myth than anything else. I think that's, uh, uh, there are so many of the, uh, the, the thing, I mean, let me just put a little spin on it. Not exactly. The thing that is most important in, in, in success here the, is luck. <laughs> luck and being in the right place at the right time at the right situation. Talent is, yeah, talent helps, but really luck. I, I, I mean that sincerely. So, um, it, it, you know, if you were, uh, yeah, I guess I'll stick with that. <laughs> well, also the other thing is knowing who you are and what you have to offer. Knowing, you know, not... I mean, I, I've seen this happen so long with, you know, uh, people get older, but they don't know they've gotten older and they're no longer. They're now, you know, a, a 50 year old character actor, not a 25 year old leading man or woman, uh, but not knowing that. And in a case, it's I've seen it with men, too, but with women, you know, plastic surgery that makes them unrecognizable. Uh, one or two men do the same thing as well. But I think knowing who you are and so that yeah, having a good sense of yourself. There are so many movies now that currently could not be made because the content would not fit today's vigorous standards. You once said, quote, these kind of moments should be interpreted in the content of their time and not by current standards, unquote. How has society changed for the better and the worse with biases being hyper-examined? Um, I think it's for the worse. You know, I've always been politically incorrect, um, you know, but, you know, it's, it's um, being politically incorrect within reason is fine. I mean, if we can't laugh at ourselves, if we can't, you know, Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson in blackface when they got shit for that. You know, uh, if it's a, if a black person is putting on a black face, I mean, well, you can't tell me not to do that if I was Whoopi. Come think about it, I never asked Ted Danson about that. I would love the next time I see him, I'd love to talk to him about that. And he's got another series I read, by the way, so good for him. The, the gotcha moments with being politically incorrect here. You know, oh, you said that 20 years ago. I said something 20 years, 25 years ago, or more, more. And I got shit for it at that time, but I was addressing a uh, an auditorium full of SAG members on, you know, basically, you know, what, what I did, how they could improve them, you know, whatever. And I got asked a question about a wonderful black actress who didn't work a lot. And why was that? And I said, because she's barely black. Now, what I meant by that was unless she, you had a sign around her neck saying, I am African-American, you would never know she was 
So she never got cast in those roles. And that's what I meant by that. And I thought it was clever alliteration that's, you know, <laughs> barely in black. But I got a lot of crap for that. Joel Thurm joins us beyond the mic. His book is Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season. Joel, how did age change the way Hollywood looked the way they cast actors and actresses? I don't think it changed. I don't think it changed very much. But how Hollywood reacted to it was, uh, well, not great. Um I think Hollywood was also like the rest of the country and the rest of the world. There wasn't inf enough information going around. Nobody knew anything, really. That, that you know, as, as the AIDS academic, uh, uh, epidemic and, you know, as it went on longer and longer, there was more information. But in the beginning, everybody was terrified. Um, on Hill Street Blues. Daniel J. Trevanti. Uh, Dan was gay. Um, and the people who worked with him closely knew that it was not, it wasn't exactly an open secret. I don't think the general public ever knew or had an inkling. And there was certainly nothing stereotypically gay about the way he, um, carried himself. And anyway, the point is Veronica Hamill went to see Veronica Hamill, who played his love interest on the show, the attorney Davenport, uh, went to Steve Bochco and asked that there be no kissing scenes from that point on. You know, that was she uh, again, I, I, I can't really blame her for doing that, but it was just such ignorance, such ignorance that uh, that was the problem. You've heard the expression, you'll never work in this town again. Oh, directed at me only once. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard the expression a lot, of course. Why did that old phrase make you laugh? Because it's a re it's an empty threat. If you're if you if you're needed or you know you're you're the you're the secret sauce that someone needs to complete a project, they're going to hire you. So it's uh, it, it's it's an empty threat. It's a great phrase. You'll never work in this town again. And the time I heard it was when I it was it was the last project that I did. And I've I've said the most difficult thing for a casting director to cast and you get paid the least amount of money for the most difficult thing to do, which is to cast an unfunny half hour comedy pilot. <laughs> I mean, I've actually heard people say, can you can you, you know, if, in, a, in, a, in a reading in an audition situation? Can you do that? Can you read again, but make it funny, make it funnier? How do you make something funnier? I mean, but uh, so I was casting this this show, uh, and it was basically I just got fed up because the 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 writers well, they happened to be four women. It wouldn't matter if they were men, but they happened to be four women, which is kind of unusual. But they didn't have a clue that what they wrote wasn't funny, and I just. Um, what do you call it? I just I had it up to them with their stupidity and. In the middle of a casting session, I just said, look, since you guys know everything, you don't need me. So here's my book. And I'm sorry I gave that book away because it had a lot of good stuff in it. Here's my casting book. Here are all my notes. You don't have to send me the second payment and goodbye. And on the way to the parking lot to get my car, I must, I got three calls of the, you'll, if you do this, you'll never work again. And my answer was basically, I don't care if I never work again. I just can't do this anymore. I was so lucky 
in the beginning of my career to work with the best possible writers and directors and producers. I was not going to end my career working with idiots. <laughs> Joel, what's the best secret in your casting book? Well, no, well, the secret was this woman who um, I, I, I wish I knew who she was. I hope she's a big star now. I just don't know. But uh, just through a, you know, I forget how she came into my office, but a young, beautiful woman, when she read this unfunny script, at least she made sense of it. It sounded sensible. And I gave her a piece of direction and she took the direction. And I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe this isn't so bad. And then I said, here's a script, come back day after tomorrow and we'll read some more. And she came back and she read better. So her learning curve was definitely, you know, uh, uh, upwards. And when I brought her in to read for the writer producers, just halfway through her reading, you hear from the back of the room, thank you, which basically means stop and go home. And I asked the woman to wait outside for a minute. And while we talked about her and I said, well, look, I'm, I'm guessing you said that cause you didn't like her. And she said, well, you know, she read and you know, that paragraph, that last paragraph, uh, she didn't, it wasn't, it's, we know that's funny and she didn't make it funny or she didn't get it. And I had to bite my tongue to say, who told you that paragraph was funny? Your mother's? Because it's not, you know, but I didn't say all that. I thought that. But but then I tried a, a nice piece of logic. Logic? Does logic work in Hollywood? Well, normally it does, but not with these effing idiots. And so I uh, I said, we, we there's something that's known as a test deal. I said, we have no one. We shoot in two weeks. So... Um, her, to me, her learning curve is up. Let's make a test deal, which what happens is you set out the terms of your agreement, how much she's going to get paid, how many years is a contract and so on. But you don't have to exercise this test deal. It's all in the producer's favor. It's very much to the actor's not detriment, but the, the power still rests with the producer. It obligates you to nothing. So these women had nothing to lose. And they said, no, 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 she'll never get this. And no, let's not do that. And that's when I realized I was working with idiots. And that's when I said, well, you know what, then, since you know everything, you don't need me. Bye. <laughs> and I left. I walked out. I just walked out of it. And that was it. How about your favorite moment for TV? I'd had a couple of really successful things right in a row. It was probably casting Airplane, the Rocky Horror Show, and... I and I and Cheers and I think I it was I was sitting in the audience for Cheers and I was sat next to the head of Paramount Television and who was trying to court me for something so I was being courted by the head of the studio I'm surrounded by my friends Jimmy Burrows the director and the actors on Cheers and it's like oh my god this is good <laughs> <laughs> Those are the good parts Who is the one star you passed on that turned into a huge star. Tom Cruise. <laughs> what was it about Tom you couldn't stand? If you're going to make a mistake, you might as well make a really good one. How? How? Very simple. Likeability. Um, and this was, again, this is the only movie, I'd, the only piece of film I'd seen on him was the movie Taps, where he played a villain in a, uh, what do you call it, military school. Then he he read for this project, which was basically Superboy, but called with different names. 
his screen test was abysmal. It was horrible. He screen tested with um, Heather Locklear, as a matter of fact. Uh, you can you probably go to YouTube. You can find it because everything winds up there. And the test was awful. It was me seeing him in taps where he was very unlikable, but he was doing a good job of playing unlikable. <laughs> you know, I really hadn't spent much time with him. I didn't really know him at all. So uh, I, I nixed it. I said no. Even though my assistant at the time, Mary Buck, said, Joel, you're making a huge mistake, blah, blah, blah. You should never judge. But she said all the right things, and I didn't listen to her. So that's my biggest mistake. What was your biggest success, Joel? Literally, the biggest success would be Greece, the movie of Greece. Still the largest, the most, the, I, I think it's still the largest grossing musical ever. Certainly, it's a project that's going to, as I say in the, in the book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director, <laughs> that, uh, you know, people are going to be watching Greece for the next thousand years. It's never going to disappear. Every generation discovers the movie, and whether it gets watched on a screen or, or on a swatch watch, you know, on your, on your wrist, it's going to be around forever. I think that is my biggest success. Joel, what made Travolta and Olivia Newton-John so perfect in your mind? They had great chemistry. They liked each other to start with. <laughs> they, and it was the perfect combination. I mean, both of whom have tremendous charisma. How do you define charisma? You can't. You know, you know it when you see it. It's like that Supreme Court justice who once said he knows pornography when he sees it, but he can't define it. Well, it's, it's the same principle. It was a project originally that she didn't want to do, but, you know, she asked for a screen test and then she liked herself on the screen test. She met with John and liked John. And so she took a chance. I mean, she was a huge, huge pop star at that time and didn't need this. She didn't need this for her career. It was so she didn't, she she took a little leap of faith. So, um, yeah, no, it would be it would have been. I mean, the two liked each other. How do you define chemistry? There was, there was, they were both engaged in other relationships at the time, so that was off the table. Um, but it, it, you know, you could tell every moment they loved being with each other. They and 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 John, on a set, John is no star shit, or at least you know, in my, I mean, it's like he was, uh, you know, he was as as warm and wonderful and cuddly as you think he might be, or hoped he might be, and never pulled rank. Never, I'm the star. I've never, ever, ever seen him do star shit ever. Was there a story that didn't make the book because of editors or publishers? No, no, no. I mean, really? I, you know, I have a publisher who's basically a printer, <laughs> and I wish the publisher had had gone over this and corrected all the typos and all those kind of errors because it's filled with them. But or I should have given it to my sister, who's an accountant. I didn't think of her, but she put every single typo and 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 error she found. I mean, the only thing I left out, I mean, it has nothing to do with what you said, was I spent um, my middle, my, I guess when I was in my mid-50s, I became a long-distance bike rider. You know, I did um, five California AIDS rides. They're charity bike rides uh, from San Francisco to L.A., and then two of them from Boston to New York, and then one cross-country one from Seattle to D.C. So that was a whole period of my life. When I sort of stopped working, I, I wasn't getting a big, I wasn't getting my salary anymore. And 
I turned to bike riding as, oh, you know, and I was great at it. I was very good at it. So, uh, you know, and now my sister's the bike jock. What can I say? It's time for One Big Question with Joel Thurm, author of Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season Beyond the Mic. Joel, what do you consider your legacy? Well, I think my legacy is are, are the, the projects that I cast that are like one, Greece is never going to disappear. I don't know. I think people who know me, the legacy is how I conducted myself in the business, how I always answered, you know, unless I was going to terribly hurt somebody's feelings, I always answered truthfully. Uh, I realized that my job, there are no absolutes. It's not like you can weigh a pound of chopped meat and it comes out to a pound. There is, it, there is, it's very difficult to be absolutely right or wrong when you're making artistic decisions. So I realized I was being paid for my opinion. That's all I was being paid for. And therefore you got it. <laughs> that was it. His 65 Mustang was stolen, didn't want to be cannon fodder, and was a long-distance bike rider. He would have liked <laughs> to have cast West Side Story. Or Dreamgirls or any big musical. Another another big musical is the right answer. Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season is the book. Joel Thurm is the author. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for being the only bright spot on this incredibly dreary morning here in L.A. <laughs> and that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. <laughs>